because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome author and teaching and learning educator Doug Lima to the Basketball Podcast. Doug has appeared on episode 153 of the Basketball Podcast, and we are grateful to be able to follow up with him on many of the topics that have appeared after we connected with so many coaches after he published The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug Limoff is a former teacher and school principal. He helped found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. His book, Teach Like a Champion, Now Teach Like a Champion 2.0, describes techniques used by exceptional teachers. It has sold more than a million copies and has been translated into a dozen languages. His other books include Practice Perfect, 42 Rules for Getting Better at Getting Better, and Reading Reconsidered. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Well, our first one was so much fun and uh, got incredible response, I believe, for both of us. And uh, clearly your book has uh, stimulated a lot of coaches thinking as well. So grateful to have you back. And uh, a lot of the topics we're going to discuss have come out since that podcast and since that book. So give us an idea of why we're here. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I've 100% decided to, you know, do a 2.0 version of the book, but, you know, I find them always thinking about uh, things in the book and talking to a lot of coaches. And I think there are like at least three chapters that I've outlined in my mind that will like I'll add to the 2.0 version of the book. Um, And so I thought I thought it might be interesting to talk about those because they're really like in, in many ways, they are responses to the issues that coaches raise when I when we talk about teaching athletes. So, um, so I assume it'll be interesting to other, or at at least useful to at least some other people. So, well, I couldn't say yes fast enough when you suggested (laughs) it. And, uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, uh, just again, great stuff you share always and uh, so much of it relevant to uh, coaching and teaching and, you know, just, just generally being more effective. So one of the topics that, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about a little bit is this concept of game coaching. What is the best role for a coach and what actually impacts performance? And uh, I know this question yeah. is is at the forefront for many of us. Yeah. Um, well, so the, it's, it's such a fascinating question. And really, like I started thinking about it because it's the first question that coaches always ask. Often it's, you know, what should I what should a halftime talk look like? And I think that's a really fascinating question. And I guess the first thing that I would say is, you know, um, as a preface to my answer, I think there are two potential goals. You know, uh, we're often, we're trying to win games and that's not wrong, right? (laughs) Uh, That's an important purpose. It's part of, part of learning is learning how to win. Um, And we're also trying to teach and teach for long-term value and learning for athletes. And sometimes those things work together well, and sometimes they happen in conflict and game day is emotional. And I often get caught up in the winning. And so I can do things that are counterproductive to winning in, in trying to win. And I can do things that are counterproductive to learning in trying to win. So interestingly, this started for me when I started, I was talking to a couple soccer clubs about it and I went to watch, um, 
a guy for me who's like one of the very best youth soccer coaches I know, literally, like if I could have my kids play for him every year, I would in a second. And he said, do you want to come watch me on game day and give me some feedback on what I'm doing? And I said, yeah, great. I'd love to. And uh, so I watched him do his pregame talk. And it started off beautifully. He just thought really intentionally about like what, how the, where the kids were seating and how they were seated and, um, and how he was going to present information to them. And then he said, okay, guys, so here are six things we need to think about for the game today. And then they went through the six things. And then he was like, and a couple more things and a couple, more, you know, and I, uh, one of the things we know about working memory is that it gets overloaded really quickly. Um, and it was really clear to me that best possible outcome here was that he, he was, ba what I perceived to be happening was his describing to players all the things that uh, could potentially go wrong but it wasn't really helping them to think about them and master them uh, and prepare for them. Uh, and so I think, I don't think it helped them when they walked out on the field and possibly it uh, overloaded their working memory and even like degraded their performance a little bit. So we just started talking about like, what should it, what should it look like before the game and what should halftime look like? And so the first thing that we did was just divide game day into four moments that I think it just, let's start by naming them. One is the pregame talk. One is the halftime talk. One is the post-game talk. <laughs> and one is just live coaching, which is the things that I'm saying and doing on the sideline while players are playing. And I think one of the most important things is to try and link them. So, if you know, I can tell you some of the things we talked about for pregame and halftime, but I think one of the things is like, and then how do I link that to what I say to, play to players on the sideline? Well, game? the first thing is just to remove this notion that the Hollywoodization of these different yes. spaces is not true, right? That's yeah. not what is actual coaching and what actually makes an impact, right? Not the big speech. Uh, I think that's right, right? The issue is... Um, it's rarely that guys don't want it enough or, you know, don't have the fire burning in their bellies. And if that is the issue, you're probably not going to fix it by, I mean, there are probably occasions when you can fix it by talking to them, but for the most part, that's embedded in the culture. And, you know, you learn to play with fire by practicing playing with fire, uh, you know, with fire in your belly. So, um, you know, I think the opportunity for, uh, for teaching and learning and, uh, you know, one of the interesting stories that I actually, I did tell the story a little bit in, in the coach's guide to teaching, but, um, Gregor Townsend is the head coach of Scotland's rugby team. And he was telling me the story of this six nations rugby match against their rival England. And the first half just could not have gone worse than it did. And they were down, you know, they were down like 30 to six or something, you know, by a bunch of tries. And he was just like this, this, you know, halfway through the first half, he was like, I'm going to turn on the hairdryer, <laughs> you know, at halftime. And by the time he got closer to halftime, he was like, well, there's no reason, like this game is gone. Like, uh, I'm not even going to do that. I'm just going to walk in there and I'm going to coach. My halftime talk is going to be about making sure that this never happens again. And the guys understand their role so that when we walk out at the next match, we understand what we should be focused on and what our roles are and what we should be doing. So he was almost like today is a loss. And so he said, I walked in and I was really calm. And I said, let's go through a variety of scenarios. And I want you to tell me what exactly you're supposed to be thinking about, what you're supposed to be looking at, and where you're supposed to be in the variety of these following scenarios. You know, in each of these scenarios, this is where we're getting beat. He was like, I was really calm. We were really focused on it. Uh, and we walked out, we walked out into halftime and we ran off, you know, five tries in a row and tied the, they ended up losing the game, you know, in like the very last seconds, but they basically tied up this game that he thought was gone. And he was like, you know what? The plural of anecdote is not data, right? So I don't know for sure, but I keep on going back to like, was there something about the fact that instead of 
going with emotion. I went with like attention, right? This is what you should be paying attention to. And was there some connection between the halftime talk and what happened afterwards? So we'll never know, but I do find found that's a really interesting question, right? I love that example. And to a certain extent, like coaches that argue on behalf of their style, whatever it may be, a lot of it is what players get used to. And mm-hmm. they can they can excel despite or because of what yeah. you're doing in halftime or pregame or stuff like that. I'll give you a quick story. As I was with a mentor for a long time, and he used to almost always lose his mind at halftime because he always felt there were things they could do better. Yeah. And the one time we went into the half, we're up 23 on the number one team in the country. And he said, because I kind of tried to convince him, say, okay, listen, they've been pretty good. He went in there and said some nice things to them. And then they came out and they almost lost. Yeah. <laughs> and he blamed me afterwards. And I reflected on that first of all, saying, you know, that was a bad decision on my part. I overstepped. And secondly, it wasn't that it was wrong to say nice things. It was that players weren't used to it. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about a style and a preferred sure. style in terms of approaching it. Let's yeah. say without emotion. Well, so, yeah, I, I'm going to I guess I'll start when you say style. Uh, let me start by describing what I think maximizes long term learning players and this so this is kind of the model that i came up with this coach so let's start with the pregame talk um players remember what they think about right so if i want them to think about things during the game i should cause them to i should not just tell them but i want them to think about things and i want to tie those things to language cues so what we decided was he should come up with like let's say three or four phrases that they had talked about in practice that were part of their game model that he wanted, that he anticipated that he would probably say on the sidelines, press high, um, transition quickly, you know, something like that. And that the pregame talk should be something like, guys, one of the things we're going to work on today is press high. You're going to hear me say that on the sidelines. When I say press high, what actions and what thoughts should that trigger for you? Turn and talk to your partner go 30 seconds, right? Okay. So pause. Great. Chris, what's what, you know, as an outside back, what should that cause you to think about? Great. Kevin as a center midfielder, what should you do? Or maybe it's even like outside backs get together, center backs get together. What's your responsibility? What should you be thinking about when you hear the phrase press I go, right? So then I'm, I'm causing them to think about and focus their attention on a limited number of things that will, that will help them during, you know, elite athlete that being an elite athlete is controlling your attention and your emotions under challenging situations. So I'm helping them to guide their attention to and think about the most important things and linking it to the language that I'll actually use. So then the next thing is like, so then live during the game, what should I be shouting? Press high. (laughs) I should use them because they've rehearsed and they've thought in their minds, what will I do? What will I look for when this happens? So I'm really guiding them to like in the match, there are only so many things that that you can constructively think about. We're going to be thinking about this idea of what we're doing when I press high, you know, so then that, that maybe I take my other phrases in the pregame, like, great, when you hear, when we, when you hear me say lightning transition, what should you think about? What should you do? What should you look for? So it's a small number of things, you know, I think like three or four is probably the, the most you can hope to have players really think about, but they're processing it and thinking about it and preparing to think about it during the match. So then, you know, I think halftime talk, I think halftime is like, is really interesting. Um, I think the first thing that I want to do is be able to process my own emotions. So I want to probably give players a little bit of time, circle up with my coaches and say, great, what's important here? What do we want to talk about? One of the most useful phrases that a coach has said to me that it's 
in the book is, you know, when you chase five rabbits, you, you catch none. And often halftime is like, here are 36 things you guys, we need to do differently. Or each coach has five things, right? So I'm the head coach and I say, here are the three things we really need to focus on. And I say, you know, coach to my assistant, what do you got? And he says three things. And then the, the other coach has three more. All of a sudden we're at nine things. And, and, uh, and now working memory is overloaded and players are confused. And it's actually likely to degrade their performance. So let's huddle. Let's talk about what the most important points we want to make are, and then maybe even talk a little bit strategically about, and like, what is the affect we want to present? Are they flat? Do they need to hear a little bit of intensity from us? If so, why? Or do they need calm focus? Do they need confidence, right? Let's, I'm not saying that you should never, you know, you can't ever, shouldn't ever get emotional, but let's be strategic as opposed to reactive about it so let's huddle really quickly and talk about what are our points and what is the what is the emotion <laughs> let's let's plan our affect when we walk in there to talk to players and then ideally you know i think that's where it started and ideally like i want the players to do a little bit of thinking right maybe it's like guys would said we were going to press high and we said the three things that we're going to do when we're pressing high were the following things and we're not doing why are we struggling to do this part of it uh you know and it could be let me let me map it for you. Here are some things that are happening because just be totally directive. Like, this is what I want you to think about. Or it could be you tell me, you know, I just think like those are both different options, but I'm really only going to be able to cause people to think intentionally about a small number of things. So I need to be super, super intentional about them. And I need to link them to the emotional setting in the, in the halftime talk. So, so I love what you're saying, particularly about you gave us the four things and then how you connected them. You just gave us an example of that as well. And I think that's so important because, again, if it's important enough to teach, it's important enough to hold them accountable to it. That would apply in this simple situation. I'm saying if it's important enough to go in the game with this focus, then throughout the game and then post game, yeah. that's partly what we hold them accountable to and what we evaluate the game on. I think so much of game day coaching is self is the art of self-discipline, which is like, of course you can think of 15 things that can go wrong, but all you accomplish by telling players, be careful, let's be careful, let's be careful, let's don't do this, don't is like it, you give yourself the opportunity to say, I told you so, but you don't really help them manage those situations if you name 15. And so you've got to step back and think about, okay, what are the important things that I want them that I actually want them to be able to think about here and you know, here and now and that requires me to manage my emotions and uh, and make some decisions, right, about what's most important. Well, and not taking away their freedom and creativity to play the yeah. game, which is we've worked all week to get ready for the game. And if we give them too much information, that's a problem. But also to your point there, it reminded me of when a sports psychologist came into my team once and then gave the example of saying red wagon. And then ask mm -hmm. the players, what do you think of when you hear the word red wagon? Obviously, you hear of a red wagon. So what yeah. you say can have a big impact on them in some context, because that's ultimately what they're going to think about and what they're remembering. You know, I think that's so important, which is you, uh, the ideal solution is to, I want players to have a mental model of what right looks like. And so what I want in their minds is I want them thinking about what is the solution? What is, what does effective play look like? What does our game model look like? What do solutions look like to the problem that we're facing as opposed to calling their attention to like what's going wrong and the mistakes that we're making and inserting those mistakes or anxiety about those mistakes in their head. So like, I would like particularly youth players to walk out. It's challenging out there. We know how to solve this problem. What are the things we think? So remind ourselves what the solution looks like, remind ourselves that we can solve it, get a little bit fired up to go out and solve it. Right. That as opposed to here's what you guys are doing wrong. Here are the mistakes we're making. You know, like that's 
describing the problem is not as effective as describing the solution. I want to get your thoughts on this, and maybe you've dealt with it, maybe you haven't a lot, but this concept of an in-game intervention, particularly Mm -hmm. around an individual player. It could be around a substitution or some could be some type of specific in-game feedback. Are there some ideas for best practices to be able to do this? Hmm. By that, you mean individual player. Doug, you can do better at this, and I need to be able to alert you to the fact that you can Mm -hmm. do better at this or you know, obviously you're doing well at this and keep doing it, that type yeah. of thing. I think like shouting things to a player while they're trying to execute is challenging, right? And so- They're generally frowned upon, right? It just doesn't impact them and the player doesn't want to hear it, do they? I mean, I think that that's, I, I wish it were more frowned upon <laughs> than, it, than, it, than it is, right? I think that like, this is another, just like the exercise of self-discipline. I feel emotional about it. And so I yell it. I think one of the first things that every coach needs on the sideline is um, a notepad. One, it's, it's a great way to take notes on the thing to gather data about what you're seeing. But one of the reasons why people struggle to exert self-discipline over their own verbalization, the things that they shout, is because there, there's no other way to productively use their observations unless they tell the player when they notice it right then. But if I can write it down, or even better, like I've worked with a Premier League coach, we talked about this. He was like, I'm too emotional during the game to stop and write down. I'm like, great, have an assistant behind you who you're like, write that down, write that down, write that down. And what that does is it gives you a productive way to use your observations. And if you don't have another way to channel your observations and put them to productive use, all you will do will shout them. Will be you'll shout them at people in the moment when they're trying to do something else. I was working with a coach a couple of weeks ago who my focus was to try and get him to recognize the difference between yelling something helpful to a player and yelling something true to a player. Casey, you can't you can't stick your leg out like that when you're defending, right? Um, after the play. She's still trying to play. She probably knows she made the mistake, but even if she didn't, telling her what she did wrong and isn't going to help her prepare for what's happening next, all it's doing is drawing her working memory and her attention to the past as opposed to the next thing and probably frustrating her and feeling like, yeah, I know, like, I know I made the mistake, right? How does that help me? Versus, so that's something that's true. I'm sure he's accurate, but I'm not sure it helps the athlete much versus waiting for downtime and saying, Casey, when they attack in numbers, protect the middle of the field first. Shape, you know, shape your hips to, you know, to be ready to turn and run in the direction the ball's moving. Right. That's like, okay, forward-looking thing that I can solve, delivered in a moment when my working memory is not focused on playing. So I don't have to choose between listening to you and performing well. Because if you force me to do that, if you shout at me while I'm trying to play, I have to choose. I can listen to you and degrade my own performance. Um, or I can practice ignoring you. Uh, we don't really want to, first of all, we don't really want to build a culture where, where players practice ignoring us. So waiting for the right moment and talking forward about forward looking about next thing. To your question just about like interventions with players, I also think, you know, substitution rules are different in different games. But I still remember a youth coach that who my son played for, who my son was a center back in soccer. When you make a mistake as a center back, it's a howler often, right? Like, you know, like everybody, everybody notices it and it can be bad. You know, it can be bad to be emotional. You end up giving up a goal. And so like, he played for a lot of coaches who'd be like, yeah, I got it. You know, like you can never do that, you know, because the coach is embarrassed when the team gives up a bad goal, makes a mistake. And this coach would very quietly pull him out, stand on the sideline next to him for, you know, 30 seconds, often put his arm around him and say, you know, when you, you know, what, whatever the same feedback go back in and do it. Right. And so in that setting, it's private, it's not public, 
it's clear that my goal is to help you and support you. And then like, then the message is like, go, you know, go do it, go uh, going forward. And I think that that was like, you can't always do that. But to me, that's a better intervention than across the field while I'm trying, while I'm trying to play in front of lots of other people. Um, and so, you know, I think there are, could you do, could, you know, I, you see, you actually see this quite often and, uh, and, you know, a player will come over to the side near the sideline. They don't even really have to come out. Right. But just that, like taking a few steps towards you, even honestly, if everyone else can hear it, the vibe is still, I'm trying to have a private conversation with you. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to make this about me and my ego or overheard by everyone else in the stadium. So a few things to end out is one is the connection between guidance and motor learning and what you're talking mm -hmm. about there is yeah. the problem with guidance. Let's say having marks on the floor early in learning, it's fine, but eventually it becomes a dependence mm -hmm. and it removes that individual uh, decision-making that freedom and creativity that we want all of our players to play with. So that connects there to giving too much feedback within the game. Yeah, I think that's right. That's right. The second thing that I think is brilliant that you shared is this idea of journaling it or communicating it to an assistant and the reason again it connects to psychological strategies like thought stopping or what my sports psychologist called parking is literally that you park it so that you can deal with it later and yeah. you acknowledge it you become conscious of it and then you park it and you know you can come back to it but often you just let it go and that's the main part about most of these emotions we carry in a game isn't it just our ability yeah. to let it go yeah that's right you you know if you listen to an audio tape of yourself during the game you know, three quarters of the things you you would say like, okay, I probably could have let that one go. And in fact, the things that are really important stand out more if the channel, the primary channel of communication is not cluttered with things of secondary importance and tertiary importance, right? The more disciplined I can be, the more the things I do say matter. So it actually help, it helps you to communicate more if you can cut out the less important, more impulsive things that you say. This is great stuff. So actionable. And I want to ask your thoughts just before we move on to a different topic yeah. about not actually having a post game. And I mentioned this to you that Lynn Roberts, yeah. University of Utah, Trish Collup at uh, Toledo, both of them on the podcast suggest said that they do not meet with their team post game. Yeah, I think there's very limited value in post game talks. Uh, it's hard for me to conceptualize how you can help a player or help a team other than to like reframe an experience for the, like, I would say like, would I, might I want to do a post game talk if like we lost, but I want them, you know, I want players to see things that they did productively. Like we did, you know, like there are a lot of things we did good today. You know, we did well today. If we continue to do this, we will be successful. You know, you know, don't take this too hard. Right. I can, I can see like an, like a framing exercise like that, but I think most of post game talk is coach processing their own emotion saying a lot of things to players that they simply can't process in the moment when they're they're highly emotional and they're spent and they're spent psychologically and there's no time for them to use or apply it and so it's going to get forgotten anyway so i th think at minimum very very short limited number of points as positive as possible so that players come back motivated to learn and improve on you know the next day but i think it's really it's a really interesting thought exercise which is like what do I need to say post game other than, you know, like, is it possible there's no post game talk? I could see that. Yeah. And we've talked to the youth coaches a little bit about that concept. And they, a lot of them insisted, well, we've yeah. got to meet with them. And I understand that. But a lot of it I'm just said to them is, well, you got to meet with them to kind of tell them yeah. what's next more than what happened. I like that. I, 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 two th I, I like that idea of what's next, right? See you Monday. We'll be back. 
maybe even on Monday, we'll talk about how we like, we'll talk about why we were so successful today and we'll work on kind of taking it to the next level. On Monday, we'll talk a little bit about how we can defend against some of the things that happened. Go home, get some rest, right? Make sure you get your, you know, make sure you rest. Or maybe the thing that I have, maybe my post-game talk is not a post-game talk, but it's a post-game ritual, which is like, we all shake each other's hand. We all, you know, like there's something that we always do together culturally at the end of the game that cements our sense of belonging and, and uh, togetherness. And that's how we end every time. And then it's like, it's familiar. It reminds us that we're part of a team and a culture. And I don't have to like make a decision about what I want to talk about when I'm potentially highly emotional and I'm likely to say something that's non-productive. So that might be another, that might just, that might be another option, which, cause it's nice to end an event with some sort of like something that feels like closure, but maybe it's just a ritual every time. Thank yeah. everyone on the team. Thank the refs. Thank your parents. Let's go. I, and, and absolutely. I love that. That's, that's so cool. Cause yeah, with my young teams, um, we've got into this ritual of starting practice or starting games with get better. And mm-hmm. at the end of it, we end with got better. Mm-hmm. And win or lose, we connect them to the fact that we we learned and we're going right. to improve because of the experience. So I love that idea of the ritual and uh, formalizing that a little bit more. L- let's talk about using video as a learning tool, because I know this is big on your mind and I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts. And in your words, and please discuss the degree to which athletes succeed in learning from video has not necessarily increased at mm-hmm. the pace with technological advances. Yeah, it's fast. I mean, it's such an exciting time, right? We have this incredible learning tool at our disposal. Just like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, if you wanted to show players video of themselves playing, you would, I mean, just think of the, think of the process, right? You'd have to call a videographer with a big video camera and explain to them what to shoot. And they'd shoot some of the video, then they'd go and they'd take it back and they'd spend a week preparing it. They'd send it to you on a DVD. And then you'd have to roll a TV in somewhere and put the DVD in the TV. And if you wanted to edit that and highlight, you know, something that like the, the spacing of your play, like uh, maybe you could point to it on the screen, but now you can like, you can say, you can walk out on the field with your iPad you know, in the middle of practice and be like, pause, boys, let me show you what you look like in the three on two. What do you notice about your spacing? Or you can the next day, you know, produce a video. Um, you can send a video to players on their phone, showing them highlighted, you know, in like three different interactions where you look at them in the press, right? It's incredibly powerful. But in some ways, all of this technical sophistication also distracts us from even at the most elite levels, professional sports levels, division one level, a lot of video uses coach at the front of the room saying, guys, see this, see this, see this, got it, do better, go. And I would say, no, they don't see that. Ultimately, what decides whether someone learns from video is what's happening in their brain while they're watching the video. It's very complex. It's a very complex form of information. And the more sexy the things that we can do with the video, the more likely we are to overlook the basics of it. I'll just give you a tiny example of this. I spent a day with an NBA team. It's summer, you know, it's NBA summer league. So interestingly, just like to put this in context, you know, you know this better than I, but like it's four guys, four or five guys from the very bottom of the roster of the NBA roster and eight guys whose lifelong dream is to be on the NBA roster. And so there's a lot at stake for these guys and they videotape them in the morning practice and they can like, they go into a room and they can chop up the video 
in 10 minutes, you know, it's voice coded. So every time Chris touches the ball, someone says Chris, and they can be like, show me all of Chris's playing the, they can produce anything. And so guys come in, the players come into this auditorium in between practice and they get to see 10 videos of themselves practicing in the morning and they go do it better in the afternoon. So it's incredibly sophisticated. Not one of the guys sitting in the room has a notebook with them. No one is writing anything down. The coach has not thought of like, what is, where do I pause the video to focus players on the visual cue that should, like, I can tell them what they did wrong or what they did right in this segment. But what I want is for them is to pause it right before they make the decision and have them look at the visual cue that told them you had space, you should have shot, you did not have space, you should not have shot. Um, so that they, <clears throat> the power of video is helping me to understand visual cues. No one's thought about the question where they want to pause the video, how players are going to turn what they talk about into long-term memory. And they haven't thought about how players are going to talk to each other about the video. Because if I can, if I can teach one player to recognize something, I can make them a little bit better. But the killer app is we all see the cue that the back door is on similarly together. We see it fast, you know, we see it and understand what it means faster than the opposition can see it. And so for that, we have to talk to each other about it, uh, about what we're perceiving in video sessions. And so what often doesn't happen in video, so, you know, play, people remember what they think about. It's just not a lot of thought, writing, talking about what we're seeing. And video is, you know, in any video, there are 15 things happening at once. You put up a video of, you know, here's three examples of us in the press. Put up a video. Guys, what do you know? Like, you've watched the video six times before you show it to players, right? So you know this video really, really well. As soon as you put the video up, you think they're looking at the spacing and they're like, is that me out there? You know, like, which are we in the red or in the white, right? Is it, uh-oh, is this the game where I'm about to get smoked, where I, where I didn't box out and I'm about to make a big, like, they're not even watching. And you're like, great, did you see the spacing there? And the answer is no, no one was looking at it. And so one of the phrases that I'm going to sort of put in the chapter is like, the, the video starts before it starts. You have to start shaping players' attention before you even put the video up. So I'm going to show you the video once. I want you to watch for our spacing. Then I'm going to show it to you again, and we'll go slowly. And I want you to pay particular attention to like, and I want you to pay attention to this, because otherwise everyone in the room will be looking at something different and they won't have shared perception about what our spacing tells us about what comes next. Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballimmersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our Basketball Immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. So I've got so many thoughts. You, it, this is awesome. So the, when you just said, you know, it starts before it starts, the, the one thing that I started doing later in my career, and it connects to that, was I started to text the group in advance or the small group mm -hmm. the individuals what we were going to cover in advance so that they came yeah. in with an understanding and an idea the second thing that really stands out from what you're saying is i realize how much time i spent preparing for a practice 
and how little time I spend preparing for a video session. Mm-hmm. And the video session, and if and if we know anything about video nowadays, it's almost more impactful yeah. if I prepare more for it. And yeah. uh, that's got to be a part of my plan, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the truth, like in thinking about preparation, I think what did Bobby Knight say? Most people have the will to win. Very few people have the, the will to prepare to win. Mm-hmm. But that is very true about video. When I have a video ready, I should plan. First of all, I, sh- I should plan my pause points. Where exactly do I want to pause the video? Because what players are looking at when I ask them a question is very important. And what question do I want to ask? Right. So um, so it's not just showing the video, but it's showing the video and stopping somewhere and asking a specific question. And maybe what do I want to direct their attention to even before they watch it? And then maybe even like I think any video that's beyond a very simple video, players probably need to see more than once to really understand. And so maybe it's even like, what is the, what is my question the first time I show the video? And what is my question the second time I show the video? And does that imply showing less video better for sure? Am I going to be able to get through 36 clips of you, you know, with poor defensive spacing? No. My goal should be to show three really good clips that really cause you to understand. But to do that, I really have to think about what I want you to look at, what vocabulary do I want you to use to talk about it so you can talk about this concept with your teammates later? Um, and how can I even, like, then one of the next step, I think one of the coaches that I've worked with, one, it, it took us a really long time to get here, but one of my key, key main arguments was when you play for this team, as a rugby team, you should get a notebook. And your notebook has your name on it and the name of the team on it. And you bring it to every video meeting so that the coach can say, pause, sketch how we look now, sketch how we should look, you know, sketch it out in your, in your, in your notebook or pause based on this video, write down one note that you want to think about when we walk out on the practice floor so you can review it before you go out there. Right. Just because we talk about it does not mean it gets encoded in memory. And so I have to think about how I'm going to cause my players to remember what we talked about or what so, they learned. The great, uh, many coaches that listen know the, the great Don Meyer used to always have his players carry notebooks everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the concepts was that they write down stuff. And the other thing it connects for me when you talk about that is that the pause pr- procedure, when I was a you know college professor lecturing, you know, that idea of me talking for 60 minutes versus me yeah. talking for five minutes and pausing or 10 minutes and pausing and giving them time to process for a minute or two. And that's that's definitely relevant in this film example, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, film is so dense cognitively that I ha- we, we have, a you know, my team studies video all the time, mostly teachers. We have a working rule. It's called the three minute rule, which is like even the most professional group of teachers, if you're showing them teaching video, if the video is longer than three minutes, you have to pause it. And this is, you know, like video of a classroom is much slower and much less dense than, than uh, video of a basketball game or a soccer match. Like, working memory is going to get overloaded very quickly it's very intense there's so much to track give it just honestly you could pause and not even ask a question if you just said i'm going to show you here's here's video of us defending i'm going to show it to you for 50 you know, show 15 seconds i'll pause here and let you jot some notes and think about what you've seen and then i'll press play we don't even need to talk about it i don't even need to ask you just giving you time to like think about what you've seen 
because by the time you get to the end of a minute and 30 seconds, you, you know, of like really dense action, you won't remember what you thought and observed about what happened in the first 30 seconds. And so a lot of the thinking just disappears into the ether. So I, I'm going to jump around a little bit with some of the topics about video because there's just so much I want to cover with you. But one of them was I remember reading an article this year that it, it was an NHL team. I can't remember the team, but they banned in-game video for their team because they thought mm-hmm. players were getting too obsessed with it, too focused on it. And again, it removed <clears throat> some of their ability to just play the game. In other words, they were like, they were thinking as they were playing, what is this going to look like when we watch it in the film? Exactly. <laughs> it became a yeah. crutch almost. It's so int- I mean, it, it does speak to the, just the ubiquity of video, right? It's everywhere now. We tape, we tape, we can tape everything, which is potentially great, but that's different from whether we should. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a fascinating thing. And, uh, you know, the other thing that kind of stood out is I, I sat in with one of my consulting clients for their video session, much like you talked about at Summer League. And knowing what you're actually sharing with them is such a fascinating part of this because they left the video session. And when we debriefed with the coaches, you know, they were talking about, Oh, we got to get more skilled. We got to do more of these type of things to get better individually. And then I stopped them and said, do you realize that nine of your 10 clips were about decisions? They had nothing to do with skill. And it was just that kind of thing that they went in thinking they were talking about one thing. And the reality was they showed their players something completely different. And yeah. mainly, we don't know what the players contextualize, do we? It's so, I'm so glad you said that because I think one of the most interesting questions that you can ask about a video is to, like, especially if you pause it, is, is to say, what do you see? Or what do you notice here? Because we know so little about what players perceive and how they think. And so just the open-ended question of what do you, you know, what like, it could be that they say fascinating things that are like really insightful that you never thought of. It could be that they say things that are like right spot on with the mental model. And you're like, they understand how we're trying to play. It could be that they say things that are like utterly random. And like, they're just, they're just noticing exactly the wrong thing. And they're, what they're noticing has nothing to do with what, where their eyes should be at that moment. You know, it could be any combination of those things, but just asking a very open-ended, you know, oftentimes we have something we want players to see that we see in the video and we say, do you see this? Do you t- like watch for this? There's also a place for like, tell me what you see so that I can understand, you know, so it's a, it's a way to check for understanding and understand how my players perceive the game, which is like, that's very, very important, especially to decision-making. And that's kind of what you're saying, that video should be this interactive process, right? It's not a lecture. It's an interactive process. Absolutely. I mean, yes, I do believe that. I think that um, some of my sort of, some of the clients that I have that are like at a higher, you know, the highest possible level, they feel like as game day approaches, they, and this is their working theory. I don't know whether I agree with it, but as game day approaches, I want to get more directive. And, you know, so like three days from the game, I'm okay being like, what do you see? What do you, what's important here? And the day before the game, it's, you know, like our spacing is too tight. You know, <laughs> is our spacing how it should be? Is it is it tight enough or is it too loose? Um, but it's interesting. I proposed, I, I mentioned that to another coach and he was like, I would do it exactly the opposite, which is like, but the day before the game, I would actually want to be more open-ended and understand where they are and have them be thinking more about decisions that are closer to the game. And so I think like those two theories are kind of fascinating. Like, do you, <laughs> first of all, you know, Maybe you don't even have to have a progression, but do you want to progress from more directive to less directive or less directive to more directive as the game gets closer? To me, it connects back to what you talked about a little bit with pregame speeches in a sense that 
you know, again, if we give them too many things, they're not getting the main message. So to me, the value of film, and we're, I want you to get into this too, because we had a brief discussion before we did the podcast um, a few weeks ago about the difference between individual film, small group film, mm -hmm. and team film. And yeah. to me, I felt that team film is less valuable than small group or individual, mm -hmm. but you rightly pointed out the value of team film as well. So to me, it comes back to what is the message you're trying to send within that session and yeah. are you sending it? And that's yeah. the main thing. It's a little bit like, we're, you know, we're just talking like there's so many potential distractions on game day and so much of it is like my self-discipline. What I want to accomplish with a video and recognizing that sort of like I was saying, like, you plan your message and you also plan your affect. What I want to get out of a video could be technical. It could be tactical. It could be cultural, right? It could be like, I just want to honor the guys who were without any fanfare working their behinds off without the ball and all the thankless things. And I want us all to like celebrate. I was, I want us all to see that and celebrate it. And like, they're going to get the best parking spot. <laughs> like there, there can be lots of different reasons to show video. And I just want to be really intentional about what I'm trying to accomplish because otherwise there's just so many directions it can, it can go. And you just never know what people are watching, watching for and seeing and watching and seeing are very different things. So it connects back to like this intentionality is like an NBA coach told me once that even at that level, he felt like, you know, maybe three of the 15 players, watch every clip right and then yeah. five of them don't watch anything they're not paying attention at all and then there's this middle and it's like this intentionality and that's why it's like what is the most important thing and how can i direct their attention to it and i know that's something that you talk about attending to attention so uh can you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean i think you said it you said it perfectly which is uh just to go back to this phrase like you know to be an elite athlete is to manage my attention and my emotion under complex circumstances. And so I always want to be thinking about what, sh what should my players be thinking about? How can I steer them to be thinking about the most important things? Everything that I mentioned that is not the most important thing is a, dis is a distraction from that. And so I think it's one of the, one of the many reasons why less is often so much, you know, less is more that I would often think that if you know, the more we say, the more we tell players, the more they'll learn. And I think that that's one of the, that's one of the biggest paradoxes of coaching which is in the effort to speed up learning we often slow it down uh, and so just being really like what are players thinking about what are they watching what are they focused on like that is particularly in you know in uh you know that is the greatest term the greatest determinant of what we learn is what we're paying attention to the other part for me is like what like the barometer of a good film session or the most important thing might be what are you connecting back to the next practice? To me, yeah. that's a big, big deficit sometimes is that there's a great film session and then nothing from that film session is connected to the next practice or that practice. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the best times, I think, you know, we tend to show video after, after the game, after the practice, but actually it's probably more productive before, which is like, if I had to choose between watching myself after practice and critiquing myself or watching a model of ideal execution before we go out, you know, right before we walk out on the floor. So it's right in my mind is like what we want to look like when we, you know, when we play the double gap offense, I'm, I mean, in an ideal world, we would have both sometimes, but I, I might choose the first, which is like the video comes beforehand to help me envision what I'm trying to do. 
I asked or I saw Eric Spolster once before a game and asked him what he does before a game. And he said he goes through the game before video with an assistant coach, basically critiquing the decisions. And when you mm -hmm. just said that, that connects back to that to me and going, okay, why would he do that before a game when it could kind of make him like anxious or I screwed up or different things like that. But what you just said is it brings it to his attention and probably helps him apply it better, whatever different decisions he wants or what decisions he wants to keep on with, doesn't it? But I, th I think right, bef right before a game, I probably want to help players envision high-quality execution of us, us playing the way we want to play as much as possible. One, because I think, you know, like, I think is a really interesting, you know, I think it builds confidence, right? Like, I think it's a really interesting analogy in, um, you know, there's just a ton of, in, in Major League Baseball, there's a ton of research on the idea that, like, what you're doing when you're hitting a baseball is perceiving the motion of the pitcher before he releases the ball. And so what that tells me is that batting practice taken from a batting machine probably doesn't help me very much because the skill is not actually watching the ball. The skill is watching the pitcher. And so a lot of teams are like, okay, no more batting, you know, uh, no, no more batting machine. And, um, and, you know, one of the other key things that we know from research is that um, once you've encoded a skill, uh, random practice and serial practice are more productive than block practice, right? So batting practice traditionally was like five fastballs, five curveballs. And so then the, so the, obviously if I want to maximize learning, batting practice should be like, I'm not going to tell you what pitch is going to be. You just have to hit it. And I think what they found was that that was probably better long-term for players learning, but it shattered them psychologically right before, because so much of batting practice happens right before the game in the major leagues. And so they had to kind of find a middle ground of like the first five pitches, the first five pitches, like we're going to choose what they're going to be and they're going to be delivered to like challenge you. But then you get to call what you want your last five pitches to be. So you walk out on the field, remembering what it felt like to cork the ball and feeling good and confident and having a little bit of swagger. I do think there's probably a video version of that, which is even if we look at some, like, here's some things we need to learn from the last game. Here's some challenges. The very last thing I want my players to see before they walk out on the floor, I want them to see themselves succeeding, have a really good image of what success looks like and walk out on the floor with a little bit of like swagger. I love that. And when you talk about random practice, I'm, I'm curious because I started doing this. And again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that once I dove deeper into research around random variable practice, whatever it may be, and retrieval practice specifically sure. from some stuff you share is I started to, instead of showing, like, say we show 10 clips, we're not going to do three defense or three of the same things. We're actually going to mix up all the clips so they have love to that. actually come back and retrieve. And does Because once you tell them, the now research? we're, I love that, right? Once you say, now we're going to watch some examples of us in the, you know, in our zone defense, right? Like, well, now I've told them <laughs> yeah. half the things, like, what's important here, right? What is, what is this clip telling us, right? That's, uh, then I'm learning to watch more studiously without, without the sort of, you know, uh, I want to remove something you know, at first when we're sort of learning how to defend and be like, great, let's talk about how to defend. But over time, yeah, I need to step back a little bit and probably let I really like the idea of interleaving videos, right? So that I have to like struggle to figure out what it's about and what we're learning here and what the challenge is and what the solution is. So that's not always predictable to me. I think it's a lot like that batting practice example, which is if I always know it's a curveball, then I won't learn to see the curveball when it's coming. If I always know you tell me like, these are some good examples of our spacing, I won't learn to look and see is our spacing good or bad here? Is spacing not even the issue here? Is, is the issue something totally different? 
the gift of video, I think, is that it teaches, it gives us so many more opportunities to teach players to see the game and, you know, and decision-making always starts with perception, but that doesn't, but those things don't happen automatically unless we, unless we think intentionally about how to cause it to happen. The only piece of advice I'll give coaches about that is that like early in the year, I taught my players why I'm doing it so that I said, listen, I can put this in a perfect order and it'll look more impressive. But the idea is to mix it so that you guys have to constantly, obviously, search and retrieve, search, decide and execute, so to speak, in, from, in terms of that uh, perception form. But it also connects back to your planned pause points, right? Yeah. So it's only messy to the players. To me, I know what I'm doing. You know, one other example, I love I love your point. And one other example of that, in addition to like interleaving content, I think is interleaving quality. Like so often we're like, let's see some good examples. Let's see some bad examples. Even the idea that examples are either good or bad, as opposed to like good and bad or mixed or, you know, like, so, I mean, I think it's just withholding that information and being like, here, you know, here's us defending. What do you think? Right. That is really teaching players to like do the kind of seeing and evaluating that they have to do during the game. So not, you know, so interleaving the just from a quality perspective, good, bad, good, mediocre, uh, good, mediocre, bad, you know, just like always having to do that evaluative step of what's, what do we see out here? I I love that. I'm adding that. And uh, I did want to ask your thoughts then on using film to actually critique a player. Are there some best strategies that you can suggest? This is sort of like player did poorly. I want you to understand. Need to intervene to help them do something better. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I think it's good. It's good for that. Right. It's, um, it's gift is that it, objectifies the conversation for years and years and years with the players who were making who were you know shooting when the shot wasn't on taking bad you know bad shot selection we would say your shot selection was terrible and then it's a judgment i don't agree you know i don't agree why is he always picking you know like much easier you know much better to be able to say let's watch some videos of your shot selection and talk about when you're you know when it's optimal when, when it's optimal and when it could be better Let's start with like what are, what are the things we want to think about when we're making when you're selecting shots. Great, I'm going to show you some examples, and you're going to you know, and I'm going to be honest. Some of these frustrated me as a coach, and I want you to tell me which ones which ones frustrated me and should frustrate you as a player who wants to be great and how you can make them better. Right. So, um, but all of a sudden it's an objective conversation because we can look at it together, and you can if you and I can even say if you disagree with me and you want to make the case, we can roll it back and we can watch again and you can tell me why that's a good shot. Because I should be able to be like, okay, I agree. But if you look at it again, you're off balance and you're not facing the basket and and your teammate is open 10 feet away. But I think it it makes it feel less like, it makes it feel the process feel less subjective and more objective. That also, I think, lets me take some of the I think that it lets me adjust my tone a little bit, which is like the video is going to do the work of pointing out the error. And so my role can shift to like making you realize that was a mistake to making you, to helping you think about what the solutions are and how to get better at it. What do you see here? I'm going to ask you to focus on your shot selection. What do you see here? Core shot selection. Great. Let's talk about what we can do to make it better. Right now I'm your ally as opposed to like the guy who's, uh, as opposed to the hanging judge. Or maybe it's, what do you see here? Uh, shot selection seems fine. I disagree. Watch again. 
why do you know what what are we looking at that's different what are we looking at differently here it's important for us to understand this and come to an understanding of why these are why why we disagree about these shots so i think it's i think that's one of the gifts of, of video i just think like we're all we should always be thinking about i want it to be safe to be you know i want i want to make players comfortable discussing their mistakes with me and so um when a player identifies a mistake right they've done they've done the hard work then i don't want to I, if i shout at them the incentive is don't you know don't don't reveal your mistakes because it'll make me mad. So like, what'd you do wrong here? I'm out of position. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Let's talk. About that. Uh, I just you know I think that like culture is important in those moments, but uh, but it, you know it's so potentially powerful to see to let players see their see their mistakes and how to fix them. So there is a place for direct instruction in film, just like in the coaching environment. But yeah. generally, the tone is you want it to be comfort, uh, more conversational, more open-minded, and obviously safe. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that psychological safety is, you know, like one of my favorite lines is, I'm so glad I saw that mistake. It's going to help me to help you, right? I'm going to help you. This is how I'm going to help you get But I'd rather, you know, I'm glad we saw this now because I want to make sure that, like, we fix it before the game, before the before the playoffs, before the championship, like this is how we're gonna get this is how we're gonna get better. I'm not saying mistakes may not affect you plays, but I'm not gonna be mad at you. Like I'm, you know, I'm not gonna be mad at you for making mistakes. I may be mad at you for lack of effort, right? But I'm or you know, but but I'm gonna my goal is to help you get better. So we're gonna sit down and talk about it. And I'll tell you what I need from you. If you can't fix it, you know, then that has a you know, at some levels that has, that has a playing time effect. And I think that that's right. You know, there should be accountability for it and there should be rewards, rewards for guys who work hard and fix things. But I want to make this, I want to, I think sometimes when we introduce a lot of emotion to those conversations, we distract players from the things we want them to focus on. So I'm yelling at you. You can hear the anger in my voice when we're talking about the video. And now you're thinking about, why is he mad at me? Does he does he react to equally to um react in the same way to errors that all the players make? Does he sound like my dad when he's angry? And rightly or not, all those things are not him thinking about shot selection, right? And so they're distractions from where I want reminds again. It's about like guiding attention and focusing on attention. So there are some times where, like, you know, it's the tenth time, you know, like the, I'm not saying there's never a time to be like, look. This is happening over and over. We really need to fix this. I'm not saying there's never a time for emotion, but I just think we usually go there too quickly and don't recognize the way that it often um, interrupts and disrupts focus on learning. Absolutely. And, uh, and another part of video, of course, and I'm using your phrasing here, effective watching is powerful. So how can we help our players, our athletes watch video better? I'll just go back to one point that I made before, which is I think the most important part of any video is the pause point, mm -hmm. right? There's a the, like, it's actually where you stop the video that is the most important thing because it lets me slow down. I mean, just to go back to group invasion games, decision games are all about cues, about visual cues that tell us what decision to make. And if all that happens in my training as an athlete is a coach tells me you should have been wide there, then I'm always dependent on the coach. And true autonomy is the coach helps me to understand when they when they are positioned like that, you're wide. Great. Let's watch the video. What do you notice about their position? They're positioned centrally. Great. So you should be wide. Next step. Great. Let's watch the video. 
what do you notice? I should be wide, right? That in the end, players have to players have to perceive the the visual cues that tell them what decision is what decision or decisions are required or open to them in any given moment. And the real power of video is that I can slow down reality and pause it and really study and and develop understanding of visual cues. So, I mean, interesting, like, you know, videos, it, it's moving pictures, but the most important point is where, is where you pause it. Pause, what do you see here? Talk to me about the defensive spacing. Talk about his body position. Or maybe even, maybe even none of that, just pause, what do you see here? Those are all opportunities to teach players to read cues. And until we had video and we could stop reality like that, we never had a way to teach cues. So that to me is the most powerful part of video often overlooked and that means that the most part most important part of the video is where I, is where i pause it and that to go back to your point about planning like when i plan to show a video if i haven't thought like i should know to the second at six seconds at 16 seconds i'm going to pause this video this is what i want players to be looking at on the screen when i ask them what do you notice about our defensive spacing and if it's a second later if it's second later it's not as good as if it's at six seconds because that's where the visual cue is occurring just as some advice, the way I used to do that uh, was that I actually, because you can do this with most video editors now, you can actually build in a frame so that yeah. you can add a, a frame where it actually pauses and freezes. And then that reminds you as a coach that this is the point that I want to pause. So it's I super simple with modern video to do that. And maybe one other tiny point, I think one other thing that you can do is then often what we're doing as coaches is we are linking complex visual picture, a picture of the defense and the, of the opposition defending us and what sort of, you know, what that requires of us or what our spacing should look like to a concept that exists in language. And one of the things that video allows me then to do is like, I pause and I show us attacking in a pod of three. In the case of rugby, I can put the language that I want to use to describe that on the screen, right? So that players associate the language to the picture, the language to the picture, the language to the picture over and over and over again. So then when I start to use the language, it's cueing the picture. And so, um, you know, I just think one of the potential power of videos, the ability to combine picture and language by superimposing, here's our term for this over the, uh, over, you know, over the image of it at the moment when players and interesting, well, I, I think there are a lot of details about how this can be done, but ideally like you wouldn't have to go back and forth between looking at the word and the picture. They would be close together on the screen. Lots of times, like, uh, one club that I worked this was doing this would like put lots of fancy graphics. And one of the things we realized is actually a much simpler graphic, like is less distracting. I just want you to associate this picture, pods of three, with this phrase so that I can say, get in our threes. And that cues an image in your head that you've seen a thousand times in video. I'm so glad you brought that up. I've seen some video that looks like Hollywood productions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But just remember, everything you add to it can distract from what you want them to actually learn, right? Yeah, better video is not necessarily, or, no. or fancier video is not necessarily better video from a learning perspective. Like a lot of times what we're adding is actually distraction. There's a great book on that. There's um, the this concept in cognitive science is also often called dual coding, which is like under, is like processing things in language and in, in pictures at the same time. And there's a great book on this by a guy named Oliver Caviglioli. But one of the things he talks about for teachers is really simple thoughts. <laughs> really simple line graphics as opposed to like you know lots of times we put inspiring images on the screen because we think it will be more motivating but all it really is is, is distracting paying attention to attention 
Right. So, you know, what am I paying? What am I paying attention to is the most important thing in learning. Focus on being effective rather than impressive. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, type yeah. of thing. Yeah. No, that's that's great. I'm so glad we got to that point. Doug, this has been fascinating, uh, so educational for me, and I know for everyone. So again, thank you for joining us and sharing. And I already know we're going to do a part three at some point. And I know you got some journeys ahead as well, where you're going to kind of dive into some of these ideas even more. So I can't wait to bring you back and share even more with our audience. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks again, and I uh, hope to see you soon. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about ImmersionVideos.com. Have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? Watch a NATO's practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama. Or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. ImmersionVideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to ImmersionVideos.com and check it out today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at BasketballImmersion.com newsletter.